Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome listeners, and thanks for stopping by. As a reminder, the Paranormal Factor Podcast Facebook page is full of great content posted every weekday, Monday through Friday. So please go out to Facebook and search for The Paranormal Factor Podcast and start enjoying some of the paranormal content we have out there for you. Now, on to our episode. You are about to hear one of the strangest cases in all of ufology. It's a case unlike any other, both in its unique circumstances and the terrible outcome. To this day, that outcome remains a mystery. To a certain extent, we know exactly what happened because of records, participants, and the technology of the day. But the end game, the final conclusion, that is unsolved and has remained over the years unknowable. This case involves a flight, a flight that started in normalcy but degraded into the bizarre. We know the location, we know the plane, and we know the pilot's name. We know what transpired up to a certain point in time. What we don't know is what ultimately happened to the plane and the pilot, though of course theories abound. People report seeing UFOs every day, some while in planes, and some people report being abducted by aliens, but always after they've been safely returned by the extraterrestrials. So this one is definitely different than the UFO norm, if there is such a thing. Are you ready? Because here comes the strange and sad case of pilot Frederick Valentich. The recorded facts are straightforward, so let's start there. It is October the 21st, 1978, and the sun is setting into the Australian horizon. At 6.19 p.m., a young pilot named Frederick Valentich takes off in a rented Cessna 182L from Moribin Airport in Victoria. The plane is fast, reliable, and considered one of the easiest planes to fly. It is also considered a very safe aircraft with easy maintenance. It has been refueled to capacity, enough for five hours flying time. At 6.19 p.m. local time, after he had obtained a meteorological briefing, he takes off. He is en route to King Island, a 130 nautical mile journey over a body of water known as the Bass Strait. After the takeoff, Valentich establishes radio contact with Melbourne Flight Service. At 7 p.m. local time, Valentich radios he has Cape Otway in sight. The strait is famous for its difficult flying conditions, but on this night, according to the weather station, the weather in the Cape Otway area is clear, excellent visibility, and light winds. Valentich is eager to make his destination where friends await, ready to dine on fresh seafood along the water's edge. He won't be making that rendezvous on this night, nor any other night after. The 20-year-old Valentich had about 150 total hours flying time, 
and held a Class 4 instrument rating, which authorized him to fly at night, but only in visual meteorological conditions. In other words, flying at night, he was only allowed to use visual flight rules. He had twice applied to enlist in the Royal Australian Air Force, or the RAAF, but was rejected because of inadequate educational qualifications. He was a member of the RAAF Air Training Corps and was determined to have a career in aviation. Valentich was studying part-time to become a commercial pilot, but with a poor achievement record. He twice failed all five commercial license examination subjects and as recently as the month before his disappearance had failed three more commercial license subjects. He had been involved in flying incidents as well. For example, straying into a controlled zone in Sydney for which he received a warning, and twice deliberately flying into a cloud for which prosecution was being considered. He radioed Melbourne Flight Service at 7.06 p.m., almost an hour after taking off, to report that an unidentified aircraft was following him at 4,500 feet. He was told there was no known traffic at that level. Valentich said he could see a large unknown aircraft, which appeared to be illuminated by four bright landing lights. He was unable to confirm its type, but said it had passed above 1,000 feet overhead and was moving at high speed. Valentich then reported the aircraft was approaching him from the east and said the other pilot might be purposely toying with him. He said the aircraft was orbiting above him and it had a shiny metal surface and a green light on it. Seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000 just passed over me at least 1,000 feet above. Valentich was at 4,500 feet. It's approaching right now from due east towards me. It seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. His transmission became odder from there. First, he claimed the other aircraft was completely stationary. Next, he claimed it was orbiting above him. He further reported he was experiencing engine problems. Asked to identify the aircraft, Valentich radioed, it's not an aircraft. His transmission was then interrupted by unidentified noises described as being metallic scraping sounds before all contact was lost, ending at 7.12 p.m. Neither Valentich nor his aircraft were ever found. At 7.33 p.m., when the aircraft did not arrive at King Island, the distress phase was declared and search action was commenced. A sea and air search was undertaken that included ocean-going ship traffic, an RAAF Lockheed P-3 Orion aircraft, plus eight civilian aircraft. The search encompassed over 1,000 square miles. Despite an extensive search, no wreckage was ever found. Search efforts ceased on October the 25th without result. The following is the transcript of radio communication between Valentich and the Melbourne Flight Service Unit. The conversation lasted just under five minutes, including pauses, which we remove in this reading for speed and clarity. Tower Blur is 650 Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000? Delta Sierra Juliet, no known traffic. Delta Sierra Juliet, it, I, I am, seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000. Delta Sierra Juliet, what type of aircraft is it? Delta Sierra Juliet, I cannot affirm it is for bright. It, it seems to be like landing lights. Delta Sierra Juliet, 
Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. The aircraft has just passed over me at least a thousand feet above. Delta Sierra Juliet, Roger. And it is a large aircraft, confirmed. Uh, unknown due to the speed it's traveling, is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? Delta Sierra Juliet, no known aircraft in the vicinity. Melbourne, it's approaching now from due east towards me. It seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me three times at a time at speeds I could not identify. Delta Sierra Juliet, Roger. What is your actual level? And my level is four and a half thousand, four five zero zero. Delta Sierra Juliet, and confirm you cannot identify the aircraft. Affirmative. Delta Sierra Juliet, Roger, standby. Melbourne, Delta Sierra Juliet, it's not an aircraft, it is. Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne, can you describe the uh, aircraft? Delta Sierra Juliet, as it's flying past, it's a long shape. Cannot identify more than that. It has such speed before me right now, Melbourne. Sierra Delta Juliet, Roger. And how large would the uh, object be? Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. It seems like it's stationary. What I'm doing right now is orbiting, and the thing is just orbiting on top of me. Also, it's got a green light and sort of metallic-like. It's all shiny on the outside. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet, it just vanished. Delta Sierra Juliet. Melbourne, would you know what kind of aircraft I've got? Is, uh, is it a A-type military aircraft? Delta Sierra Juliet, confirm the uh, aircraft just vanished. Say again. Delta Sierra Juliet, is the aircraft still with you? Delta Sierra Juliet, it's uh, now approaching from the southwest. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet, the engine is in rough idling. I I've got it set at 23, 24, and the thing is coughing. Delta Sierra Juliet, Roger, what are your intentions? My intentions are... Uh, to go to King Island, uh, Melbourne, that strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. It's hovering and it's not an aircraft. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. Then 17 seconds follow of an open microphone. Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. There is no record of any further transmissions from the aircraft. The radio transmission itself was released and printed in newspapers within the days after the 1978 incident, which was presumed fatal for Valentich. On October the 23rd, two days after Valentich's disappearance, the Melbourne newspaper The Age printed news about how a metallic sound was heard by flight service personnel when Valentich mentioned that the engine was rough idling. Department of Transport officials working at flight service said there was a sort of metallic sound over the radio before communication was lost. A spokesman said it was possible Valentich was flying the plane upside down 
and crashed. He may have become disoriented and confused by reflection from the Cape Otway and King Island lighthouses, the spokesman said. The lighthouses may have reflected off particles of cloud. On October the 31st, a UPI report announced that Rhonda Rushton, the 17-year-old girlfriend of Valentich, after the official search had ended, chartered a flight for two hours to search for her boyfriend, believing he was still alive. She believed Valentich crashed near Cape Otway, Apollo Bay, about 100 miles from Melbourne, after turning back when he reported engine trouble about 12 nautical miles from land. He always told me that's what he'd do if he got into trouble over the sea, she said. A group of his friends, armed with transceivers, searched in the heavily timbered mountains and bush tracks, seeking any trace of the plane. They said, We want to search the area because the official search was concentrated on the sea and not the land. There are quite a few of us who have known him for years, and we still think he's alive. In the days following the disappearance, an oil slick was found in the area where Valentich was believed to have vanished. However, according to the Sydney Morning Herald, tests concluded that the oil did not come from an aircraft, but rather a marine diesel engine. Well, that's the case. So what happened to pilot Valentich and his plane? Well, before we assume he's still flying around parts unknown with alien captors, there are some theories. So let's investigate those. So what do you think happened to Frederick Valentich? Any ideas? Well, over the years, there have been three main theories that have emerged to explain what happened in October of 1978. One, a UFO either destroyed the plane, killing Valentich, or they abducted him, and maybe even the plane as well. Two, the plane crashed. Or three, it was a hoax perpetrated by Valentich. There were belated reports of a UFO sighting in Australia on the night of the disappearance. However, the Associated Press reported that the Department of Transport was skeptical a UFO was behind Valentich's disappearance. But the UFO theory is where we start. To say Valentich was obsessed with UFOs would be putting it mildly. He wasn't just convinced of their existence, he also was certain they would soon attack Earth. Some believe he got too close to the truth and was abducted. While that possibility may seem a bit weird, eyewitnesses allege that something else was out there the night of his disappearance. One individual claimed to see a strange green light in the sky, similar to one noted in Valentich's transmission. The following morning, a farmer in Cape Otway, an area along the edge of Valentich's flight path, observed a flying object hovering over his property. The object was approximately 100 feet across, and it appeared to have a small airplane attached to its side. According to the farmer, the attached aircraft was leaking oil. He was so disturbed by what he saw that he etched the aircraft's tail number into one of his tractors so he wouldn't forget it. The number matched Valentich's Cessna. UFOlogists have speculated that extraterrestrials either destroyed Valentich's aircraft or abducted him, asserting some individuals reported seeing an erratically moving green light in the sky and that he was in a steep dive at the time. UFOlogists believe these accounts are significant because of the green light mentioned in Valentich's radio transmissions. The group Ground Saucer Watch, based in Phoenix, Arizona, 
claims that photos taken by plumber Roy Manifold on the day of Valentich's disappearance show a fast-moving object exiting the water near Cape Otway Lighthouse. According to UFO writer Jerome Clark, Ground Saucer Watch argued that they showed a bona fide unknown flying object of moderate dimensions apparently surrounded by a cloud-like vapor exhaust residue. However, the pictures were not clear enough to identify the object. Valentich's father, Guido, said he hoped his son had been taken by a UFO and had not crashed. The fact that they have found no trace of him really verifies the fact that UFOs could have been there, he said. Mr. Valentich said his son used to study UFOs as a hobby, using information he had received from the Air Force. He was not the kind of person who would make up stories. Everything had to be very correct and positive for him. Around October 25th, his father said he believed his son was being held by people from another planet. He added, they may want to hold him for a week or so before returning him. More information about purported eyewitnesses came from the Herald Wire Services on October the 25th. Bank manager Colin Morgan and his wife reported seeing a large, glowing, star-shaped object hovering in the sky for nearly one hour Saturday night near the town of Geelong, 35 miles southwest of Melbourne. It seemed to be cruising almost above us as we drove down a highway, Morgan said. It was bright and had green flickering lights at one end. Residents of King Island reported sightings of strange bright and trailing lights over the six weeks after the incident. The Crash Theory Valentich was an eager young pilot with major goals for his aviation career. Unfortunately, it didn't seem such a career would ever happen for him. He was rejected by the Australian Air Force not once but twice. As previously noted, he had recently failed his second attempt at passing the commercial flight exam. And remember, in his mere 150 flight hours, Valentich had been involved in three in-flight incidences and was under threat of prosecution for one of them. Flying over water into the setting sun can be disorienting even for the best of pilots, even more so for inexperienced pilots. Instead of focusing on critical flight tasks, he may instead have been distracted by illusions of a UFO encounter. The four lights he observed above him could have belonged to another aircraft. They also could have been the lights of Mercury, Venus, Mars, and a bright star called Antares. Becoming disoriented, he could have either entered a graveyard spiral or even become inverted. The green light he observed may have been his own being reflected off the water. The model Cessna he was piloting could not have flown inverted for long as it has a gravity feed fuel system, meaning that its engine would have cut out very quickly, explaining why his transmission at the end sounded rough. Yet on October the 25th, Herald Wire Services published a quote from a veteran aviator named Arthur Schutz, at the time the head of an aviation company. It said he discounted suggestions that the pilot was flying upside down. Schutz said, In that half-light, the pilot would have soon known if the aircraft had started to turn upside down. The carpet comes out of the floor and the cigarette butts fall out of the ashtray. But in 2013... The Skeptical Inquirer published The Valentage Disappearance, Another UFO Cold Case Solved. It was authored by James Magaha and Joe Nickel. Magaha was described as an astronomer, pilot, retired U.S. Air Force major, and the director of the Grasslands Observatory in Tucson, Arizona. Nickel is an author. 
The two authors wrote Valentich had received an inadequate pilot education, leading to him being unprepared. In a detailed explanation, Mageha and Nickel laid out the facts on how Valentich's own words in the transcript appeared to provide the answers on what he saw and why he disappeared. They wrote, What about the UFO's movements when it was not hovering? It is now clear, since we have identified the UFO as probably a conjunction of four celestial lights, that it was not the UFO moving in relation to the plane, but rather the opposite, the plane moving in relation to the stationary lights. There is actually evidence from the transcript that this is so. After the UFO has repeatedly seemed to fly over him, Valentich says, What I'm doing right now is orbiting, and the thing is just orbiting on top of me. This points to what was really happening to the poor inexperienced pilot. Distracted by the UFO, he may then have been deceived by the illusion of a tilted horizon. That can happen when the sun has gone down but still brightens part of the horizon, while, of course, the rest of it gets gradually darker farther away. This imbalance of lighting can cause the horizon to appear tilted, so that in compensating by leveling the wings, the pilot inadvertently begins not to orbit or circle, but to spiral downward, at first slowly, then with increasing acceleration. The authors state, at a more critical time, therefore, when he should have been in fully alert mode, paying attention to his instruments, he was instead engaged in something that was extremely distracting, flying while excitedly focusing on and talking about a UFO. This, as we can now see, was a recipe for disaster. With Valentich succumbing to spatial disorientation, his plane, like that of young John F. Kennedy Jr. over two decades later, began what is aptly termed a graveyard spiral. According to the two authors, the g-forces of a tightening spiral would decrease fuel flow, resulting in the rough idling reported by Valentich and perhaps would have produced the metallic sound heard by the flight service. The two authors also pointed to the likeliest explanation for the UFO, described by Valentich as four bright lights that looked like landing lights. They believed the pilot connected the dots between planets and stars that were visible on that night in 1978, and the power of suggestion could have filled in the space, giving it the metallic look that Valentich described. As for the green light, the authors believed they found that answer as well. It could actually have been nothing more than the Cessna's own navigation light on its right wingtip. That green light, or its reflection on the windshield, could easily have been superimposed onto the UFO sighting, say the authors. Staged Disappearance Theory The night Valentich disappeared, police received several reports of an unidentified aircraft landing on Cape Otway. Assuming Valentich followed the flight plan he filed, he would have been in the Cape's general vicinity at the time he began transmitting with Air Flight Service. It is possible that Valentich, frustrated by his failing aviation career, fabricated the UFO sighting in order to stage his own disappearance. Not only would an abduction serve to validate his UFO conspiracies, but it would also give him a fresh start on an otherwise troubled life. Even taking into account a trip of between 30 and 45 minutes to Cape Otway, the single-engine Cessna 182 still had enough fuel to fly 500 miles. 
Interestingly, despite ideal conditions, at no time was the aircraft plotted on radar, casting doubts as to whether it was ever near Cape Otway. So where the plane really was is unverifiable. So what's the truth? According to Desiree Kosis, writer for Plane and Pilot magazine, Valintage was not a victim of an alien abduction, but rather a victim of himself. The farmer's story, she points out, while riveting, didn't surface until 36 years after Valentich's disappearance. In fact, despite ufologists' best efforts, such a farmer has never been found. As for the eyewitness who claimed to have seen a green light in the sky that night, they didn't make their claim until after the newspapers had already reported on Valentich, noting a green light in his transmission. Kosis notes, Sadly, it would seem the aircraft observed over Cape Otway wasn't landing, but instead crashing into its surrounding waters. Valentich's obsession with UFOs had simply got the better of him. So, the answer here seems to be, no one really knows. Those theories are what people think, but not what they know. The lack of physical clues and evidence in this case is astounding, and only adds to the mystery. No plane was ever found. No wreckage or evidence of a crash was recovered. There was no evidence left behind by Valentich in his home that would suggest a hoax or a plan to disappear. And most disturbing of all, Valentich has never been found. No body was recovered. He has never shown up anywhere else in this world. There is no indication he is alive or dead. We do have to ask the question, if Valentich was abducted by aliens in mid-flight, why is his the only recorded incident of such an in-flight seizure? We have thousands of UFO sightings, hundreds of alien contact reports, and an equal number of purported abductions. Of course, one of the main differences here, besides the eerie in-flight aspect, is those other abductees came back. So this appears to be the only case of its kind over decades of UFO incidences, which diminishes the likelihood aliens are to blame, though it does not entirely nullify that possibility. And if this was an elaborate hoax by Valentich, which he certainly could have perpetrated, what's the good of that without bragging about it later? Either that you did it to fool someone, or to boast you were really kidnapped by ETs and lived to tell the tale. Well, we can build straw men and knock them down all day, but in the end, it doesn't answer the central question. What happened to Valentich? How and why did he disappear? After all these years since the incident, no new information or facts have come forward. No found plane, no hoax confidant or co-conspirator, and sadly, no Valentich. The fate of Frederick Valentich remains a mystery to this day, and it appears it is destined to remain so. Postscript. While his aircraft was never recovered, in 1983, an engine cowl flap washed ashore on Flinders Island. The Bureau of Air Safety Investigation concluded the part came from a Cessna 182 between a certain range of serial numbers, including the one Valentich had been flying that fateful night. 
Well, in our next episode, we'll jump into the legend of one of the most infamous cryptids out there, the incomparable Chupacabra. El Chupacabra, literally the goat sucker in Spanish, is known by not only paranormal enthusiasts, but even most of the general public in the Americas due to mass media, growing legends and lore, and the occasional publicity it receives when a new photo or video pops up. This legend is fairly new, with the first sighting originating in Puerto Rico in 1995, but since then, it has exploded onto the paranormal encrypted scenes in a huge way. We'll not only give you the story of its first sighting and origin, but we'll also describe its appearance, the locations it's been reported in, and of course, first-hand accounts from those who have encountered it. Next time on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. It is time for the quiz, so let's get right to it. Here's your question. When was the first Bigfoot encounter recorded? Was it A, 1,000 years ago, B, the late 1700s, C, 1893, or D, 1924? Once again, when was the first Bigfoot encounter recorded? Was it a thousand years ago, the late 1700s, 1893, or 1924? And the answer is... A. 1,000 years ago. On the Tule River Indian Reservation in Central California, petroglyphs created by a tribe of Yokuts at a site called Painted Rock are alleged by some to depict a group of Bigfoot called the family. The local tribespeople call the largest of the glyphs Hairy Man, and they are estimated to be between 500 and 1,000 years old, according to researcher and author Kathy Mouskowitz. Many of the indigenous cultures across the North American continent include tales of mysterious hair-covered creatures living in forests, and according to anthropologist David Daigling, these legends existed long before contemporary reports of Bigfoot. These stories differed in their details both regionally and between families in the same community. According to the Encyclopedia of Cryptozoology website, possibly the earliest encounter between Bigfoot and a Western eyewitness may have been made by Daniel Boone, of all people, in the late 1700s. According to Boone family tradition, in the last years of his life, Boone told several people that he had killed a 10-foot-tall hairy giant, which he called a Yahoo. Boone's name for the creature has been taken as a reference to Gulliver's Travels, though the Cherokee term for a hairy giant is Yeho. North American settlers started reporting sightings during the late 1800s and into the 1900s with the occasional finding of footprints, sporadic encounters, and photos. And those footprints? Well, they led to the common name we know today for these creatures, Bigfoot. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. 
love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by. <laughs>